Let's uh, open up our Bibles this morning. I trust that you do have a copy of God's Word. The book of Mark, Caleb read these verses a bit earlier, and we won't read all those verses. We will work our way through them, but just as a place to to jump into the text, we'll read verses 10 through 13, uh, if we may, this morning together. If you have your Bibles, let's begin in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. Did I not tell you that already? I said it and I hear a bunch of pages turning, so I must have left something out. Um, Mark 8, verses 10 through 13. And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmuthia. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, There shall no sign be given unto you, excuse me, given unto this generation. He's speaking directly to the Pharisees or in this case really to the entire nation of Israel. At this point in our study in the Gospel of Mark, we have come through nearly two and a half years of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior here upon the earth. Been nearly two and a half years have passed since he was first baptized in the River Jordan when the heavens were opened up and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And that was uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit, just really a, a commissioning, if you will, of the walk and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, nearly two and a half years have passed, and so time would be short. Jesus was now just literally months, less than a year, toward the cross. And he would be there upon the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And in this two and a half years leading up to our study, and we've looked through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen many things. We've seen much happen in the ministry of Jesus. But since the time, again, of that baptism um, and that, that commissioning, we've seen so much thing, so many things take place. We've seen uh, and heard Christ preach. We have uh, seen many, many, literally thousands, hundreds and thousands of miracles. And the Bible tells us that, that the whole multitudes came out of cities. And all that came to Jesus, I think this is a remarkable statement. The Bible says Jesus healed. He healed them all. The crowds came out to be healed. But also understand not only did the crowds come out to be healed, but the crowds came out to hear. They came out to hear the preaching, the words of Christ. And although the many miracles that we look at in the scriptures, they're wonderful, they're divine works of God. Uh, we stand in awe at the miracles, the sheer magnitude of them. But I want us to think this morning and be careful that we don't allow our minds to think that, that the miracles were the highlights of Jesus' time on, on earth. Although they were great, great highlights. But I just want to think even beyond that. For I believe that the preaching ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was greater even than the miracles. The preaching ministry. I believe the power of his preaching exceeded the power of his miracles. Every preacher, and there's a number of preachers in this building this morning, and every preacher knows that, that there's power in the word of God. Would you say amen to that? 
There's power in this book. There's life-giving power. Hebrews 4 and 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The, the Bible has a way of attacking directly to the point. It's like a precision surgeon. Uh, this week, Delaney went through some very tedious surgery. Two different physicians, surgeons applying their skills to a specific area. The Word of God is exactly that way. It applies its truth to specific areas in our life. You ever come to church and, and, and it seems like the preacher's preaching. He didn't say a thing about the thing you were dealing with in your life. But it seems as God takes His Word and applies it to your life. Nothing can be said from the pulpit, but God applies it. You see, the Word of God is that way. It's that skilled surgeon that goes directly to the need and to the cause. There's power in the words of the Bible. This book imparts spiritual life to people. Another thing that every preacher knows is, is that power, uh, power in the preaching is extended to the preacher by the Holy Spirit. You see, power in preaching comes when the preacher is a yielded vessel. A yielded vessel. Not only do we have power in the word, but we find the power when the preacher is yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. The Holy Spirit is able to use a preacher that's living a life of obedience. A preacher who is not caught up in the world. Who's not bogged down with the distractions of everyday living and the things of this world. Not caught up in sinful pleasures. God anoints the preacher. With Holy Spirit power when the preacher is yielded and willing to be used of God to reach a lost and dying world. A seminary degree or a Bible college degree. Some courses in uh, preachers take courses in homiletics and hermeneutics. How to study your Bible. How to put a sermon together and all these things. And all these things uh, can be helpful. They do provide for some tools. But unless... There's a yielding of the preacher in his life to the Holy Spirit. Those tools are of no use. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that gives life to the preaching. That makes it literally come alive and makes those tools sharper and effective for the work. It is the power of the Word of God coupled with the power of the Spirit of God. And when those two things come together in the yielded and pure life of a preacher who longs to be used of God, then that, my dear friend, sets the stage for miraculous works among men. I believe this is what takes place when we speak of the thing called revival. And this is exactly what takes place. Now when you take that thought and you apply that, to the preaching of Jesus. Wow. Wow. What an amazing thing this is. You have the power of God unleashed. Literally every time Jesus opens up his mouth to proclaim the truth. The power of God is unleashed. Uh, he was speaking. Think about it. He was speaking the very words of the Bible. 
We look at the Bible and we've just mentioned that these, these words in this Bible, they have life, they give life. It is life-giving power in this word. Jesus was the originator. He, he, he spoke these words. The things that we preach even this morning are things that Jesus said. His words calmed storms. They raised the dead. They healed all manner of diseases. His words brought the worlds literally into existence. He gave us these words. They originated with him. So he's speaking the power of the word. Never has there been another man besides Jesus who's been more pure. Never a preacher. Never an individual walked planet earth that's ever been more pure than the life of Jesus Christ. He never committed a sin. Never entertained or an evil thought. He was and he is sinless perfection. Never a man more pure. Never has there been a man more yielded. You think about the life of Jesus. Never a man more yielded to be used of God than Jesus Christ himself. In the garden, you'll remember the story. In the garden there before the cross. And we'll get to that as we continue on in our study of the gospel of Mark. He cried, Father, if it's possible, may it be possible that this cup pass from me. But then he yielded. He yielded himself. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Thine be done. The songwriter says it this way. They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the streets in shame. They spat upon the Savior so pure and free from sin. They said crucify him. He's to blame. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But he died alone for you and for me. He was yielded. He was yielded, yielded to the cross, yielded to the purposes and plans of his heavenly Father. It was the power of his word, the power of his life, and the power of his yieldedness to do the will of the Father and the work of the Father. Wouldn't you have liked to heard Jesus preach? Wouldn't you like to have been in the crowd every time Jesus opened his mouth? And John 7 says the Pharisees, the story is recorded where a group of Pharisees, they, they sent some officers uh, to arrest Jesus and bring him back. And, and when they came back empty after hearing Jesus preach, they came back empty-handed. And they asked these men, why didn't you bring him? Why didn't you get him and bring him with you? And the officers answered, never man spake like this man. Never a man spake like this man. Peter says of Jesus in John chapter 6. Lord, where in the world are we going to go? Jesus asked the question, will you go away also? People were now leaving Jesus and going a different direction. They had begun following him because of what he could do for him. Now that when he's calling them to a life of obedience... They start walking away and start leaving. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, will you go away also? And Peter responds by saying, Lord, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. You alone speak the words of truth. In John chapter 1 and verse number 9, 
John the Baptist said of Jesus that he is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus is the true light. He lights every man that cometh into the world. And everything that Jesus did when he was upon planet earth and everything that he continues to do today is to shine his light into our lives. To shine his light into a dark and dying world. To reach a lost and dying world. The purpose and the plan of Jesus Christ is to reach the world with the gospel message. And to reach into our lives in the dark hidden places of our lives. And work and bring forth fruit and bring forth joy and peace and happiness and salvation and the forgiveness of sin. We all understand, I I trust that we do, or maybe we fully see it come to fruition as we watch and we hear the, the news cycles of the day. The fact is this, mankind lives in spiritual darkness. Mankind lives in spiritual darkness, but mankind doesn't have to. We don't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be spiritual darkness. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the light. Listen to the Bible. Listen how the Bible describes man's condition. Let me give you a few verses and I'll just pull out some highlights out of the verses. Romans 1 and 21. The foolish heart is darkened. Understand he's talking about mankind. This includes all of us. We're lost in sin. Born this way. Romans 3 and 23. For all have sinned and come short. Ephesians 4 and 8. The understanding is darkened. Being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. John 3 and 19. Man loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. 1 Corinthians 2 and 14. The natural man, the unsaved man, here he's literally speaking of. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness. Unto him. Psalm 82 and 5. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. Proverbs 4 19. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Let me give you one more. 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. The God of this world. That God is a God little g. The God of this world, that Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Understand that the devil, there's a devil out there, and that devil loves the darkness. The devil promotes the darkness, and he wants to keep you in the dark, and he wants to keep me in the dark if he's able to. He didn't want you reading your Bibles. He didn't want you coming to church. He'll give you every reason in the world why you shouldn't do either. He didn't want you to pray. He didn't want you to live godly. Why? Because he wants to keep you in the darkness. And I'm talking about spiritual darkness this morning. The devil cannot stand the light of Jesus Christ. And he'll do anything he can to keep you from it. He'll do anything he can to keep you from it. If if he can... If he can keep you spiritually blind, that's exactly what he'll do. And let me just add here. The devil doesn't mind it if you're religious. 
He doesn't mind it if you're a religious person. In fact, he'll use religion to blind you. A lot of people are blinded by their religion. Uh, The devil doesn't mind it if you're a good person. He doesn't mind it so often really if you're a moral person. Uh, Because in fact the devil will use your morality and your good uh, thinking about yourself and your own self-righteousness to blind you. Jesus said in John 8 and 12, I am the light of the world and he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life. In our text this morning, we read just a bit ago, and Caleb read earlier, I want us to see several things about man's response to spiritual light. Man's response to spiritual light. When we are given the opportunity to have spiritual enlightenment, we are given the opportunity to have understanding, and God speaks to our heart through His Word, through the Holy Spirit, Through the singing. I tell you I love the singing. Uh, There's something about the singing and the songs. The words that just. It it encourages me. It it brings me to a place of just wanting to see Christ. Enjoying Him and His presence. And God brings us to those things. There are opportunities where God is exposing His self. Exposing spiritual light. That we might have spiritual life. And when these things happen. There are oftentimes responses. Well, there are always a response to that. But how do we respond when we have the opportunities that come our way? In verses 10 through 13 that we read just a few moments ago, we see the first response to spiritual light. And that is light is denied. Light is denied. Here in these verses, Jesus has now made his way back into uh, Jewish territory. He's now made his way back into Galilee. And as soon as he gets off the ship uh, onto the seashore, we find that there is a group of people waiting. These are, guess who? The Pharisees. Uh, we've seen a few encounters with the Pharisees up to this point in our study in Mark's gospel. And Jesus is confronted with these scribes and these Pharisees. If you'll remember, Back in chapter 7, we saw the last time he was confronted, these scribes, these Pharisees, they came out, and they were arguing with Jesus over their traditions, their traditions. I appreciate the Sunday school lesson this morning, and Brother Bob Green talking about uh, the traditions of some that would hold them, and holding their traditions over the Word of God. Listen, when the Bible says it, that's all that needs to be said. It doesn't matter what the church or a church says. If it goes contrary to this book, then we ditch that and we hold on to this. This book is truth. It's power. There's power in this book. And so these Pharisees, they started arguing or trying to catch Jesus in in a trap. And Jesus begins to dialogue with them. And these religious leaders... He tells them that that their doctrine is not the doctrine of God, but the doctrine of men. 
And so at, again at this point in time, back in chapter 6, they've rejected the Lord. And then from that point, Jesus, he now leaves that encounter. And we studied that he traveled north into Gentile territory. And he was dealing in Gentile hearts. And it's amazing that as he goes into the Gentile areas, that the Gentiles are now accepting the, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's a rebuke. To the Jewish nation and to the particularly the religious leaders because they have rejected Jesus. And Jesus is ministering in this region. And now he's made his way back into chapter 8. He's made his way back and now he's back in this same area again. And when he gets off the ship, guess who meets him? We've already mentioned it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Understand they meet him not to greet him. They meet him because they hate him. They're motivated by hate. These light deniers, they're motivated by hate. Let me just interject here and say there's a whole lot of people motivated with hatred for God today. Motivated with hate. They don't come to know the Lord. They come because they hate the Lord. Seeking to take the Lord out of everything. If we can take Him off of our, out of our schools. If we can take Him out of our courthouses. If we can take him out of our, our lives and take him even off of our currency. Uh, let's get rid of God in any way possible. And by the way, all things are God. That's what they teach. But one specific. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. That discredits all the rest. Men don't like that. Men like their way. And so these are motivated by hate. They demand a sign. They come to Jesus and they demand a sign. In verse number 11, the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. They demanded a sign. The signs of who he is, what he is, and what he says. Understand there have been multiplied thousands upon thousands of them by now. But they're demanding a sign. They mention a sign from heaven. Jewish superstition thought that earthly miracles could be possibly performed by magicians. You remember in the Old Testament when Moses before Pharaoh and sometimes it seems as though he would throw the rod down and it would turn into a serpent and these magicians would come in and seemingly do the very same thing. We look at these healings and these miracles of Christ. Uh, possibly they believe that that. Uh, a charlatan could perform the same kinds of miracles. Uh, anybody could perform these kinds of things. A magician or a false prophet could perform these kinds of miracles. But if it was a, a miracle from heaven, they could possibly reproduce these kind upon earth. But how about one from heaven? God, make it turn dark for ten minutes. Uh, turn back the time. Make something happen in the heavens. Then we'll believe. So an effort to cause Jesus to, to, to tempt him into some sort of failure. It would be a trap. And of course Jesus could have very well have done this. But understand he had already performed so many miracles. And they were saying do something in the sky and then we'll believe. 
They were willfully rejecting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Messiah. Notice what happens out of verse number 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why do this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, There shall no sign be given unto you, unto you excuse me, unto this generation. No sign given. Not particularly the sign that they demanded. He rebukes them for their unbelief. And understand, they're not in charge. God is. Jesus said he would give them no sign beyond the signs that had already been given over hundreds and thousands even times over. Even if God had given them a sign, they still would have not believed. Still would have not believed. Notice with me a parallel passage in Matthew chapter number 16. Let me read you the passage. Verses 1 through 5. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, tempting, desiring him they would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but ye cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. Uh, the signs that he had already been given, but then these religious leaders, he's saying to them, Go back to the Old Testament. Go back and look at uh, the prophet Jonah. Uh, how that he was in that, that well's fish's belly for that time. And, and then he was vomited out upon dry ground. That's a picture of Jesus Christ. And he was dead for that time, he came out of that grave and he lives today. And he says, that will be a sign. But even when they came to that sign, at the crucifixion, at the resurrection, they still denied it. They still denied it. He says, I'll not give you a sign. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Let me ask you a question this morning. We look at this and we say, how could they have missed it? How could they have missed this? This is Jesus the power of his preaching, the power of his miracles. How could they have missed it? Let me ask this a question. Why would any man reject the light of God? Why would any man reject the light of God? Could it be because of pride? I think that's a good one to answer the question. Could it be because of pride? It's not a good excuse. I'm saying it's an answer that many people fall prey to. Could it be because of sin that's in a life. I know of a lot of people that would say, if I come to know the Lord, I'll have to change my lifestyle. I'll have to put some things in place. I'll have to start obeying the Bible. I'll have to change this or I'll have to change that. And so they reject because of some sin. They reject the light of God. Could it be because of deception? We just read the text. The God of this world that blinded the minds of them that believed not. Could it be simply because of stubbornness? Do you know anybody that's stubborn? Maybe we look in the Webster's Dictionary and all of our pictures might be right there. Maybe it was because of, of a hard-heartedness. Maybe it was because of they wanted it their way. It has to be done this way. Why do we reject 
Jesus Christ and his light. These religious leaders were better at discerning the weather. You, you, you watch the weather, the meteorologist, you got confidence in these guys. They were better at weather predicting than discerning the times of Jesus Christ. They were better, better at looking at the skies and saying it's going to rain than looking at Jesus and saying this is the God of heaven. And Jesus rebukes them for such a thing. Please notice that God's final response to these people. In verse number 13, I want you to notice the very first part of what it says. After this encounter, the Bible says, and he left them. And he left them. God's final response to these rejectors. Uh, he says he left them. He says the same thing in the parallel account in Matthew 16. This would be the last encounter that Jesus would have of this kind with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Up until this point, it's been time and time again, but this would be the end of it. The last kind of an encounter that he would have with the religious leaders. This also marked the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Where he was going about in the, in the Jewish community, in the Jewish towns, in the cities. Ministering and healing and doing all sorts of miracles. This would mark the end of that ministry. From now on, from here to the cross, the bulk of his ministry would be devoted directly and primarily to the preparation of his disciples. This leaving... The Bible says he left them. This leaving is God's way of allowing the rejectors to now own their own rejection. To suffer the consequences of their rejection. God in love and compassion. I want you to understand this. Please understand. God in love and compassion pursues lost people. He pursues lost mankind. He pursues mankind until we're born again. That's his desire. He pursues us with care and with provision. He pursues mankind, lost mankind, with the gospel. He pursues mankind in order that they would be saved. The Bible tells us that he, come, he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus had been pursuing these Jews. He'd been pursuing these religious leaders, the nation of Israel. And if you're not saved this morning, I want you to understand he's pursuing you too. He's pursuing you. The fact that you're in church this morning, he's pursuing you. God made it very clear though, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 3, the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. You see, Encounter after encounter after encounter after encounter. And each time they said no, 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 no. God will one day say that's enough. That's enough. There is a terminal and everlasting consequence to the rejection of God's light. The Bible, it's interesting. The Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness get it where these people are they are in their hearts and in their minds living in that darkness and in an individual can say no 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 to God and I believe there comes a time and that time may come at death 
After death, there'll not be a second chance. That, that time may come when the rapture takes place. There'll not be the opportunities to receive Christ. But God says it's enough. And he leaves a rejecter over to the suffer the consequences of their sins. We've all heard of this kind of thing and these kinds of stories. And I believe there are people in hell this morning saying, Lord, I wish... I wish I would have listened. I wish I would have allowed the lie to sink into my heart. And we know the story of the, uh, of the, the beggar man, Lazarus, that lifted up his eyes. Excuse me, the rich man, Lazarus, went to heaven. The rich man lifted up his eyes and being in torment. He says, I have five brothers. Send somebody from the dead. If somebody goes from the dead to tell them, don't come to this place. The response comes back even if someone comes back from the dead. They'll not believe. They have the word. They have the Bible. They have the truth of God's word. Let that convince them. I believe there are people in hell this morning saying, I wish. I wish. I wish. God leaves folks over. There's light denied. But secondly and very quickly, not only do we see light denied, but we see light's dependence. Light's dependence. Verses 15 through 21. Look at verse number 15 with me. They left them. Let's go back to 13. Entering to a ship. Again, departing to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them any more than one loaf. And he charged them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Here in this passage we see light's dependence. Light's denied by the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Now light's dependence. In verse number 15, we have a warning from Jesus. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven is a type of influence. You ladies who bake bread understand what a little leaven does to a loaf of bread. It's a type of influence. And oftentimes in the Bible, when we see leaven, it's an influence of sin. It's a type or an influence that sin comes in our life. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of their doctrine. Beware of their hypocrisy. He says, beware of the leaven of Herod. uh, The leaven of immorality. uh, The leaven of worldliness. Beware of leaven. Beware of the wrong kind of influences in your life. So we see a warning from Jesus out of verse number 15. He begins teaching his disciples on the heels of this encounter with those who have rejected him. And then notice they didn't get it out of verse number 16. And they reason among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. Because he mentioned leaven, they thought, well, it's because we have no bread. We have one loaf, but we have no bread. The disciples We're here more concerned about their next meal and where it was going to come from and who was going to meet that need. We see their faith was weak. The warning from Jesus, the worrying of the disciples, and the weakness of their faith. Verse 17. And when Jesus knew it, he said to him, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not, and having ears, hear ye not, and do ye not remember? Do ye not remember? A case of weak faith. 
how quickly they had forgotten the power of God. Verses 18 through 19, he begins, excuse me, through 21, he begins to remind them. You remember the hillside when we fed, all these people were fed in, in, in thousands upon thousands? How many baskets did we have? Twelve, Lord. You remember the other time when the thousands were fed? How many baskets did we have? Seven, Lord. They forgot God's provision. They forgot the calming of the storm. They had forgotten that God is able. They had forgotten the miracles of God. They had failed to trust their God to meet their needs of life. So caught up in the physical that they failed to see the spiritual things. And let me ask you this. How often are we just the same? We look at these disciples and say, My, how how could it be that they forgot being fed on the hillside? And every time they went back to Jesus with an empty basket, Jesus filled it back up and he kept filling it and he kept filling it. And we've got one loaf of bread. What are we going to do? And I wonder how often in our lives God does miraculous things for us and we come to the issues of life and we wring our hands And we worry so, how in the world are we going to feed ourselves? How in the world are our needs going to be met when we forget that we serve the God of heaven? And He's all capable. He's all able. And we worry. We worry about this and we worry about that. Matthew 6 and 30. If God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe ye, O ye of little faith? And that idea and that context is not just the clothing upon our back, but it's in every need of life. And we fret. We worry. It's this matter of faith. Light dependence. Let me just say this morning, you can trust your God. You can trust the God of your salvation. You can trust the God of this book. There must be growth. And there must be growth in dependence upon the light of God. The word of God. God will take care of you. And God's saying, trust me. Trust me. If we fed all these with just a few, I think we'll do pretty well with one loaf here. And we'll keep on doing well. Light denied. Light dependence. And then lastly. Notice with me. Light's deliverance. Verses 22 through 26. And he came to Bethesda. And they bring a blind man unto him. And besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand. And led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes. And put his hands upon him. He asked him. If he saw aught. And he looked up and said. I see men as trees walking. After that he put his hands again upon his eyes. And made him look up. And he restored and saw every man clearly. He was restored and saw every man clearly. Here I believe this is a illustration that Jesus provides. We've just seen how light is denied. There's a need for light dependence. And now light's deliverance. This is the only place in the Gospels where this particular miracle is recorded. It's the only place. And Jesus 
There's a blind man. He's brought, people bring him. He's totally blind. Understand, he had to be brought to Jesus. He's, they come to him, and this is, I believe, is a picture of the Pharisees. They're totally blind. The picture of the Pharisees. This man is, this miracle is an illustration, I believe, to the disciples and to us. And then God touched him. God touched him, but he still couldn't see clearly. He had a touch of God in his life, but he still couldn't see clearly. Is this because God was unable to restore that man's sight? No. It's an illustration. He took him off to the side. And and when God touched him, the Bible says that he looked up and he says, I see men as trees walking. Who are these men? I believe they were the disciples. The Bible says that Jesus, he pulled this man aside and I believe his disciples were with him. And they're all gathering around this blind man. It's an illustration. He's totally blind. Jesus touches him. And he says, I see men walking as trees. He's looking, I believe, at the disciples there before him. In other words, there's a need, men. There's a need, ladies. There's a need, Christian, for us to be completely dependent. Let's not walk around without clear sight. Independence upon Jesus Christ. He touched him. The Bible says he touched him again. Then he saw clearly. I believe it's a picture of faith, a picture of total dependence upon God. Only God can do this. Only God can do this. And he's saying to the God deniers, trust me. And he's saying to us who are saved, have faith, God dependence, believe in God. Quit looking at the circumstances, but start looking to Christ. He's able. Then we see light's deliverance. His sight was clearly restored. And he saw, only God can do this. Stop denying, start depending, and receive God's deliverance. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for every human being. And that every individual can be saved simply by faith. You say, preacher, I want it my way. I'm going to hang out here until I get it my way. It won't happen. Don't take a chance. It's appointed that a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. All of us have a birthday. We celebrated uh, some young lady's birthday yesterday, two young ladies' birthdays yesterday. I wouldn't dare say how young they are. But you can look at them and say they're young. We celebrated some birthdays. A lot of birthdays in the bulletin. I'm thankful for birthdays, aren't you? We also have a death date. I'm glad I don't know that one. I'm glad I don't know that one. So I live like it could be today. I trust God like I might see Him today. This could be the day we meet the Lord. Are you ready? Oh, if you're not, can I beg you? Can I plead with you this morning? Trust Him as your Lord and Savior. Dear Christian, are you struggling with the issues of life? And Jesus is in the boat with us. He says, look what all I've done for you. Look at how far you have gone. And from where you are to where you are now. And look at all the times that I've provided for you. Why would you doubt me now? Trust me by faith. And let God bring the deliverance 
to your heart. Let's bow in prayer, please.